The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. Hello, I'm Jack Wilson. Welcome to the History of Literature. go. Hello, everyone. Wow. It is so great to be speaking with you today. Things are getting bad out there, folks. They were bad, and they're getting worse. But I'm going to try to stay positive here at the History of Literature. For those of you who need a break from the news, especially the bad news, we've got a great episode lined up, a fun one. And it's the holiday season, and I think we all need to do the best we can, don't we? We'll have Chekhov on Thursday, the seagull, and oh boy, if that gloomy little thing doesn't cheer you up, I don't know what to tell you. I will be enjoying myself when we discuss it, that's for sure. Okay, so today we have Mike Palindrome here to talk about Swan's Way, the first volume in Proust's magnum opus, In Search of Lost Time, which I still believe should be called Remembrance of Things Past, and... Please get off my lawn. I'll give you a little setup before that to put you in the right frame of mind. But before we get there, let's hear from a listener. Oh, excuse me. Someone's knocking at the door here. Hello. Ooh. <laughs> the Hello, stormy it's weather. Me, Lady Macbeth. Oh. I'm here to ask you. Now, now stop. Sorry. That's my dog, Spot. His favorite dog walker hasn't shown up yet. And he's refusing to out. Out, you damned spot! He's simply refusing to leave the castle without his favourite dog walker. What happened to the dog walker? Funny story, actually. I had my husband kill him. I can't remember why. Something about a dagger. Anyway, our desperate and sweaty minion, Jack Wilson, is going to procure a new dog walker. But he... Spot! If you don't get out now, I shall kick thee all the way to Dunsinane Hill. You know I would. You know I would to Dunsinane. Um, won't you help Mr. Wilson secure a few funds? Spot and I shall be ever so grateful. Hmm, there she is, looking for the desperate and sweaty minion. Well, here I am, Lady Macbeth. Out, out, damn spot, you dastardly little dog. Well, she reminds us she's not all bad. She's just a little ambitious. And hey, maybe ambition is a good thing. Maybe putting myself forward a little bit would be good. I could be king. No, <laughs> no, I'm not going to commit murder or regicide, as the case may be. I will just tell you about my Patreon account. That's what I mean by ambition, putting myself forward. So if you are in a position to throw a little jingle jangle our way, if that's the sound that your credit card makes when you enter the number into the computer, I know mine does, especially this time of year. If you would like to help us out, you can go to patreon.com slash literature and sign up for a small monthly donation. A dollar, a fiver, something like that. Or you can pay in your home currency. Every little bit is greatly appreciated. It's been a while, hasn't it? I don't beg as much as I used to or as often as I should. So we get a little behind with the thank yous, but we are thankful to new patrons. Xi Ying, Barbara, Yasek. Brian, Francesca, Claudia, Sean, Bruce, Alice, Perry, Margot, Steve, Sterling, Sue, Max, Rob, Kevin, Rebecca, Evan, and Jim. My thanks to all of you and to all of our many generous supporters. You have truly helped sustain me here in these darkest of days. Speaking of which, we have a listener email, and you will need to forgive me in advance if I blubber my way through this one. The Irish know how to get me this time of year, it seems starting with Mr. James Joyce, whose Dubliners' stories always tear me to pieces, especially the dead. My goodness. I think we did three episodes on that one Christmas. You can find those in the archives. So here we go with an unsuspecting little email from Sarah. Subject, grateful listener. Dear Jack, my name is Sarah. I am a 25-year-old English teacher from Ireland. I have wanted to write to you for a long time, but I was too scared of sounding like an Egypt. Finally, I have worked up the courage. My dad introduced me to your podcast a few years ago during a long drive up to Queen's University in Belfast. I was studying English and creative writing, and as we listened to that podcast, I just thought, wow, 
If Jack was doing lectures at my university, the hall would be packed out and I wouldn't ever miss a class. Since then, it has become a tradition for my dad and I to listen to your podcasts on long drives together, and please believe me when I say we enjoy every moment. It has become the norm when I see my dad that one of us says, Have you listened to Jack's latest? Usually followed by an at-length discussion about Hemingway, David Foster Wallace, Shakespeare, and all the great writers featured in your episodes. Your passion for literature has ignited a joy in my dad and I that I cannot describe. Your podcast also intensifies my own passion for literature. Every episode is like adding another piece of firewood to the blaze. One of the first episodes we listened to together was your bad poetry episode. I was hooked. I remember laughing so hard tears were rolling down my cheeks, and I could barely breathe. I especially loved that you included your own poetry, and I could really relate to that from writing my own bad poetry. Now that I have started a new job, I am still lucky enough to be teaching English even in these uncertain times, I have a long drive to work alone, and your podcast gets me through the icy and dark mornings. Leaving and coming home in the dark, as soon as I hit play, I am transported to all the wonderful places in the world and periods of history that you discuss. I look forward to every new episode you make. You remind me why I love teaching and reading. When I listen to your insights on all the amazing authors, poets, and playwrights, I feel like I am coming home. I'm sorry if this email is super cheesy, and I know you are very busy and might not have time to reply, but I just want to thank you. I hope you and your family are well and keeping safe. Please keep doing what you are doing. Yours sincerely, Sarah and Michael, my dad. Oh boy, Sarah, Sarah, Sarah. I cannot tell you how much this affected me. The idea that you and your father are listening together and talking about the show, you know. I've had a lot of successes with the show. I've been very lucky. I think we've moved into the top 25 of books podcasts around the world, which is very humbling, considering there are shows on big platforms like the New York Times and NPR and places with a built-in audience that can just list their podcast on a huge website, that kind of thing. And we've just been scrapping away bit by bit. So it's been very gratifying to have that kind of success. Seeing all those downloads, we've been working hard. It's nice to see it pay off. It turns out, it's hard to believe, it turns out we've been doing this for five years, which is a little crazy to think about a lot of hours that have gone into these shows. Each time, I feel like I'm digging deep to come up with something every single episode. (laughs) So I know it's not easy. I don't want to minimize that. I know it's been a lot of hard work. But here's what I want to say. Let me put it this way. On the one side, there is all of the hard work. And on the other side, there are the rewards. The nice little mentions here and there, the thoughtful comments, the kind words in the emails, the moments where I feel like I'm connecting. And if you think of those two things, those two piles of things as a scale with all the hours of work on one side and all the compliments and other rewards on the other. That's how I think of this. And I think, where are we? Is the pain outweighing the pleasure? Are we breaking even here? Is this still worth doing? And then I get an email like yours, Sarah, and I get to imagine you and your dad listening and enjoying the show, and I think that would be enough. That one email, that would be enough. All the hours of trouble and toil on one side of the scale and your email on the other. And the scale tilts and the pleasure outweighs the pain. And I think I've done a decent job here. It has all been worth it. Okay. My apologies if that got a little sappy. If that's super cheesy in Sarah's terms. (laughs) If that made me sound like an Egypt. Oh, boy. I'm going to remember this email a long time. Thank you very much, Sarah, for writing it. And thank you to you and your father for being supporters of the show. Okay, 
Was that sappy? Super cheesy? You know what it is. It's that time of year, people. You know how it is for me. You know how I get it this time of year. Oh, boy. There we go. (laughs) Just shoot it into my veins. Are we doing this again? Just full-blown guilty pleasure for Jack. Well, he has to hear this song once a year, you know, but maybe not yet. We'll hold off on that for now. My family's getting our Christmas tree today. What a December. Four plays of Chekhov, a Christmas surprise, which I won't mention yet. Swan's Way today, and the annual tradition of getting a tree and bringing it home and making myself scarce while my wife decorates the tree with the boys. Pretty good December, I have to say. All things considered, we take our pleasures small. So, Marcel Proust, let's talk about him here for a moment set up our conversation with Mike. One of the surprising things for me, historically, is that a person we now consider one of the greatest novelists of all time, one of the greatest artists of the 20th century, was at one time just some Joe Schmo, kind of a fop, kind of a dandy, an upper-class guy who hung around parties and was known for his intelligence and his learning. Some of his writings here and there had been published, but mostly he was just an observer. This was not the guy whom everyone expected great things from. He wasn't known for being brilliant at school or for showing young, early promise with exciting novels at a young age. He wasn't nationally famous. People weren't waiting to see what he was going to write. He was born in 1871. His father was a well-known doctor who came from a line of provincial French Catholics. His mother was from a wealthy Jewish family. He was a sickly child, suffering, suffering from asthma, taken to seaside resorts with his mother's mother, help him recover. At school, he wrote for the class magazine and fell in love here and there, and he started a lifelong passion for philosophy. He signed up for military service after school, and I mean, after he left school signed up for military service, and ended up studying further after that, where he encountered law and literature and history and philosophy. At the same time, he started attending bourgeois salons, and he found himself keeping company in some very exclusive drawing rooms. He was mingling with the nobility. At age 25, he published a collection of short stories that didn't do much, And he wrote an autobiographical novel that went nowhere. He never finished it. It wasn't published until long after his death. The Dreyfus Affair hit Paris at the end of the 19th century, and he became actively involved in it, bravely standing up for the unjustly imprisoned army officer who'd been the victim of anti-Semitism. This started his disillusionment with the aristocracy. He was starting to see the world as it really was now. At the same time, he fell into a kind of state of reverie in an artistic sense, as John Ruskin's essays shocked his system. He abandoned the autobiographical novel and started to look to new sources of inspiration, even revelation, in cathedrals and Gothic architecture and the beauty of nature and the beauty of Venice, which he first visited with his mother in 1900. His quote from that period was, quote, Suddenly the universe regained in my eyes an immeasurable value, end quote. His father died three years later, and his mother died two years after that. Once again, his system was shocked. He was alone now and filled with grief. But at age 34, he also had the financial wherewithal to let him do what he wanted. And what he wanted to do was attempt to write the novel he had in mind, the novel that would eventually become a remembrance of things past. He made a few false starts, and he went through a phase where he was mainly writing parodies of other authors, which might have been kind of a warm-up exercise for the real thing. And then, in January of 1909, when he was 37, he had a moment. He tasted tea and a biscuit together, and they brought back a childhood memory And suddenly we are in the magical world of his Madeleine, which became so famous. It unlocked everything for him, what he wanted to write about and how he wanted to write it. He was thinking about getting married, but instead he retired from the world to write his novel. And he pretty much married his novel after that. He was married to it in the way you might say a monk is married to God. 
He finished the first draft of the first volume in 1912 when he was 41. So, what next? You might expect that he writes the first volume of his masterpiece, sends it to publishers who recognize its genius and eagerly present it to the world. No, not at all. Publishers rejected it. No thanks, Marcel. We don't know what this is, but it's not for us. And here's the wildest part of the story. These weren't just editors who didn't see the greatness of it. Some blind editors, some of them were. But one of these editors and publishers was the intellectual André Gide, who was himself a pioneer of sorts, a great poet and novelist in his own right, who eventually won the Nobel Prize for Literature. And he turned it down. Proust went ahead and published the first volume, Swan's Way, at his own expense. And the novel was well-received, and André Gide, reading it, immediately realized his mistake. He apologized to Proust, and he said he had missed it, and he had been wrong, he'd missed the boat on that one, and he offered to take over the publishing of the next volumes. Proust said, thanks, but no thanks, and he stuck with the publisher he had originally commissioned. The next big event was World War I and then the publication of the later volumes, but let's save that for another time. Instead, let's just focus on Swan's Way, the book that no one expected, no one was waiting for, and no one wanted until they did. You might say that Proust had to create his readers along with his novel, but once he trained the world how to read, the book became a part of the landscape. It's like a holy mountain that stands off in the distance. That can be a little remote, a little icy, a little distant. How do you approach? How do you start the climb? Is Swan's Way the place to begin? Mike Palindrome will join us now to make the case for Swan's Way after this. Hey, grown-ups, the Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his fishbowl podcast studio from the Cat in the Hat himself. And it becomes very clear that the cat has other plans for the podcast, and those plans are the opposite of quiet. The cat may be disruptive, but it turns out he's also a great help to get fish out of all kinds of predicaments. Bursting with music, silliness, and rhymes, the Cat in the Hat cast encourages us all to find fun that is funny in every episode. Sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at titanic tongue twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, Bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Okay, joining me now for a look at Swan's Way, the first volume in Proust's In Search of Lost Time, or as I doggedly insist on calling it, Remembrance of Things Past, is our <laughs> old friend Mike Palindrome, the president of the Literature Supporters Club. Mike, welcome back to the History of Literature. Hey, Jack. So, Mike, if I recall correctly, you and I were both assigned Swan's Way in our Towards Modernity class back in college at the University of Chicago. I remember finishing the book during the semester, which was not easy. Did you read it then as well? I don't remember. <laughs> <laughs> okay, when's the first time you remember reading it? Um, I was in my 30s, and yeah. I was having a horrible time at work. Mm -hmm. And I just decided that I wanted to read something that I thought I'd never do before I died. Mm -hmm. So 
I just started lugging swans away uh, <laughs> everywhere. And I remember just so many people remarking, like, are you really reading Proust? <laughs> I remember I was at uh, Heathrow Airport and this old lady came up to me and asked me, how, how was it going? Yeah. She, had, she said she had given up on volume four. It really is kind of the white <laughs> whale of literature. So most recently, you read the book as part of your online Twitter reading club. Who chose this one? I think it was down to Infinite Jest, Middle March, or Proust. Mm. And it was just so much uh, enthusiasm for Proust. Yeah, right. It's just one of those things where... People think it's now or never. Yeah, they, they, and especially, you know, you need the support group. Hmm. Mm -hmm. first, yeah the the people who were reading it for the first time were surprised by just how meandering and philosophical <laughs> it is. i mean abstract abstract I yeah mean, there i was remarking that there are lots of inst instances where he's talking lovingly about something mm -hmm. and it turns out that it's about the about pity yeah right <laughs> <laughs> like it, that's the that's the it <laughs> it does seem like the kind of book that lends itself well to this Twitter project where you're reading, what did you read, 10 pages at a time for this one? It's perfect, yeah. We we actually, we started with 12 to mm -hmm. 15, yeah. but we started to scale it back a little bit because, I mean, the challenge is when to break because right. sometimes... It's um, in the middle of a, a multi-page yeah. extended Gazing. thought gazing out the window and you'd think like, well, how long can you gaze? But mm -hmm. actually you sort of need to read the whole gazing out the window at the same, at the same time. So, yeah. And the, the, some of the other books that you've read, like War and Peace and Anna Karenina, I could see where you would feel like uh, I want to read 50 pages or I'm not tired yet. I don't want to stop at 10 or 12. I just want to keep going. Or on a weekend, you might want to read 200 pages or something, but Proust, it does seem like after 10 or 12 or 15 pages, it's nice to stop, take a breath, and explore what you've just been reading and see what you think about it. Personally, it was psychologically such a weight that I had to read Proust each mm -hmm. day. Mm -hmm. But then when I was in the middle of it, I felt kind of euphoric. Yeah. Like right. I was like climbing something. Yeah. And then when it was over, I was like, thank God it's over. <laughs> <laughs> that's the experience which is, is like such a, a funny way yeah. to think about a book yeah i was actually i was reading at the same time for another book club the music of chance by paul oster oh yeah and i started to feel like that book was a children's book right yeah i was gonna say <laughs> that's that's practically a picture book by comparison <laughs> and i was really enjoying it but i was thinking like you know what like life's short yeah like i want to read it about the way like the flowers, the hawthorns bloom. And yeah, I mean, I just want to read something that somebody obviously he was a genius. I mean, I, I just, I, the, this is my second time reading it. And I, I now think that he clearly was just a remarkable mind mm -hmm. that he could have been a great philosopher. I mean, there's so much yeah. philosophy in the book. Yeah. And so sensitive to his surroundings. Yeah, I mean, I just think, you know, that I kind of missed that the first time around because I was so, there was a bit of floundering trying mm -hmm. to figure out like, well, okay, Swan's this type. And I think I was reading it the way I read, I, the way I was reading a lot of other books, which is like identify with a type, mm -hmm. see where how the type changes. Mm -hmm. Whereas, you know, this reading... I started to notice that so much of it is this like incredibly original viewpoint. Yeah. I mean, it's like it, it, the book is so much about perspective. Right. And so. memory and, and the depth of kind of an artistic consciousness, yeah. whether it's, you know, absorbing art, visual arts or novels or criticism or music or architecture, or it's just the the perception of it and the depth of feeling that it inspires and provokes. Okay, so I know people are going to ask this. What translation do you recommend? 
So the first time I read it, I read the Kill Martin. Mm-hmm. So, and I didn't know this, but apparently when the, the, the books first came out, Moncrief, uh, on his own, without any right to do it, just started translating it. Mm. He loved it so much. <laughs> he just started translating it. And then by the time he obtained the rights, he had done the translation. Um, and then Kill Martin came, came along, took the Moncrief, and then adapted it. And then since then, the modern library, Enright. Enright, yeah. Has, yeah, so they, they call, you know, in the parlance is, you know, you have KM, Kilmartin, Moncrief, and then you have KME with Enright. Now, Penguin recently has done a translation where they got a different translator for each volume. Mm. And I just read the that one, the Lydia Davis, mm-hmm. the amazing short story writer, translated volume one. Right. So that's the translation I read. And I, I have to say that it is it's so readable mm. yeah okay it, um she she really has a sense of the rhythm of the sentences and just kind of apparently kill martin and Montgrief really took liberties mm. with uh the translation and then i read in an essay lydia davis said that she didn't look at their translations mm-hmm. she just translated it herself and then looked at the theirs, which is different from previous translations, which have always started with the Montgrief. Right. So. Okay. So that's good. Uh, good advice. Okay. So we've done some shows on Proust before. I find it hard even to express my admiration for the novel <laughs> and for him. It, it's like a mountain for me. The way you described it earlier is consistent with my own reading. Maybe it's my magic mountain. No pun intended. It's like a mountain among hills. It makes, you know, it's the grown-up book. It makes the other books look like children's books. But uh, it can be formidable to climb that mountain. And there are mountains in the world that I won't even try to climb. But maybe taking on a single volume for most people is the way to go. And so that's one of the things I wanted to talk to you about is uh, how is Swan's Way as an introduction to Proust, how well does it do? So you're going to make the case for us five reasons. Do you have five again this time? I do. Okay, five reasons why a reader should give Swan's Way a try. And for fun, this time I wrote down five reasons, and I'm gonna at the end I'm gonna see how many of yours that I that overlapped with the ones that I had chosen. Okay. So the first is probably the least accessible reason, which okay. is the philosophies. Mm, mm-hmm. um, but I, I just think it's, it, you know, very appealing. The, mm-hmm. the, the philosophy of memory and the philosophy of love and this whole idea that, I mean, I, I'll refer to this book throughout uh, this uh, this French writer who's kind of a light writer, he, Alain de Botin. Oh, yeah. Some, yeah. The Pru- you know, he wrote the Proust, what is it? How yeah, Proust how, will change your life or why you should yeah. read Proust or whatever. But he has some good details and quotes uh, from Proust. And he says that our social personality is the creation of the minds of others. And I think the, you know, that, that encapsulates just the insecurity um, that Proust was trying to capture, that cap- he captures, you know, when you're in love. Mm-hmm. And when you're trying to become an expert in painting or fiction writing or art and trying to master your own self and find out what makes you happy and makes you unhappy. And let me see, there, there was a, a passage I wanted to read about happiness that I thought, I mean, it, some of these are so long winded. You almost feel like you have to read the whole page, but um well, maybe I'll save that for later. But, you know, it, it, it's it's the whole, like, the world that he introduces you to is so familiar. Mm-hmm. But you, you don't encounter it that often in, in literature, in, yeah. in, in life. You don't encounter it. You know it. You know, the struggle to be happy, to, you know, what makes you unhappy, you know, your class issues. But it's the way he unfolds it in this novel is incredible. I mean, the, you know, he talks about the various footmen and lift boys and butlers and chambermaids and cooks. And it's just this incredible 
kind of realization of the way you view servants yeah and the way you think you're above them or you try to relate to them and how loaded these kind of social interactions are and he turns them into philosophies yeah yeah the the psychology and the sociology is a basis for his psychology and one of the things that i love so much about reading proust and I think this is what produces the kind of euphoria that you're talking about, but it can also be exhausting, is it's a little bit like sometimes you read other uh, psychiatrists or philosophers, and they're trying to boil everything down, and they're trying to come up with a system, and they're trying to express things in a sentence or two or a point that will explain everything. And Proust is almost like the opposite of that. He'll describe something and he'll give you the facets of it. And then he'll say, but there's one other thing too that you should, you know, that, that you're, or I, I actually found this contradicted in so-and-so's behavior when, you know, just when I thought I understood what she was doing, then she did this. And, and it was a little more complicated than I thought. And, and, he the whole time he's also giving his own impressions of it and and how it affects him and and it's sort of like you do end up feeling like i need to pay attention to the things going on around me because there's more there's always more there's always another side there's always something deeper there's always something richer and it makes life feel so much uh more it feels like it's deeper it just feels like life is is grander because there's so much underneath all of the surfaces. And then even when you dig down under the surface, there's another layer under that and then another layer under that. And and it ends up feeling like these commonplace things end up being as dazzling as gems that have all of these different sides. Yeah, and it, it, it's so hard to balance this in fiction. Mm, yeah, I mean, it, it's hard enough to balance it in a conversation, but in right. fiction and the way he does it, um, it reminded me a little bit of like when you first read someone like Hegel and mm-hmm. you just think like, does it need to be this abstract? Yeah. And then you, you have a feeling throughout that, yes, it does. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I got this in Swan's way that there's a passage where he says, He's talking about love. He says, so too there was a place inside him uh, which he never let his thoughts approach, forcing them, if necessary, to make a detour of a lengthy argument so that they would not have to pass in front of it. This was the place where his memory of the happy days resided. resided. Mm. And it's like, it's so abstract, but it's it has to be said this way. Yeah. Right. Like, uh, if we had a book of similar length and also of similar subject, and it was written by George Orwell in George Orwell's prose and with his kind of straightforward, honest uh, mm-hmm. approach, it wouldn't be it wouldn't be able to cover the things that Proust is covering because the style is so suited to the way that Proust is looking at the world. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I mean, they're they're just like, you know, he's so much about like, there are these places inside you, there are these, you know, there are these places we go to. Yeah. And it's, but it's, it's philosophical and emotional. Mm -hmm. But he maps it, he maps it out. So much of it is informed by little details of his, his upbringing. Like I, I I read that he, his his room was separated from his parents' room by a 45-foot-long corridor, mm. <laughs> which, <laughs> which is so bizarre. <laughs> um, but it, it just it made me think that that would cause you to formulate some ideas about <laughs> yeah. how, to, how to think about your parents. You right, <laughs> right. Okay, so what's your number two? Number two is just the language. I mean, mm. I, I put it down as the twisted phrasings I've come to love and hate. Mm-hmm. There, there were times when I just wanted to throw the book against the wall. <laughs> and say, give me some Orwell. Yeah. I mean, it was really. <laughs> but then there were times where he would say something like, you know, all the bedrooms I had inhabited in my life. Mm. You know, and it's, yeah. it's, it's, it's that contrast. There's a real rhythm 
to his prose. Like he says, like the immobility of the things around us when we sleep, the immobility of our mind confronting them. And it's like just such a nice way to describe being drowsy. Yeah, right. And it was, you know, you sort of forget where you are. There is a dreaminess to it, and it it feels sometimes like an ocean, like you're just diving in, and then you're just bobbing around in the water. I had to reread certain sentences three times. Mm-hmm. And, and that, some that, of them can be like a page. <laughs> that, that's where I wanted to throw the book against the wall, because I was like, what kind of book? <laughs> what kind of book makes you, what kind of, you know, novel makes you reread it three times? Yeah. You know? Yeah. Did you feel like this was where you were glad you were doing it as part of the Twitter Together project that you you knew you'd yeah. have some commiseration with your fellow uh, tweeters? Yeah. I mean, people were saying like, you know, well, what do you expect from somebody who spent the last like 18 years of their lives not leaving their bed? <laughs> <laughs> and I guess it, it does give you some insight into, you know, what your mind would be like. Right. And then some people would say like, well, but when the dialogue comes, it's such a relief, mm, like yeah. oxygen. You know? <laughs> right. You can move down the page a little quicker. Yeah, I think it, it really is a good example. And in fact, I look at the books, some of the books on my shelf, like Gravity's Rainbow and think like, oh, I, I need to read this in like a, a Twitter book club. Yeah. Or Ulysses uh, would be another one. Yeah, that a lot of people want to reread Ulysses. I, I've been so pleased by what a hardcore group of readers mm, there are mm-hmm. on Twitter. And so if our listeners are not on Twitter, I I almost recommend you get on Twitter and just see the nerdiness yeah. and, uh, uh, out there and people writing tweets almost every day about Melville. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, well, let's take a quick break and we'll come back with the rest of your reasons for why people should read Swan's Way. Okay, we're back. Mike, what is your number three reason for reading Swan's Way? I think it's really the all the objects, mm. um, this kind of like historical look at this time period in France and mm. Europe. Yeah, you know, like the monocles and like the mouth right. rinsing bowls. And is the pneumatic tube in uh, in Swansea? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, the <laughs> pneumatic tube, and you know, people wearing flowers in their lapels and. Yeah. And things like, you know, the way towns, everyone knew each other. Everyone knew the, the tallest building, the, the steeples of Martinville. Mm-hmm. It's just something very comforting about the, these kind of objects. Mm-hmm. And I think it's also, you know, a, a way of showing the class how wealthy these societies were. And, you know, little details like the footmen had to be five foot ten. Mm. And the, of course, the Madeline, and you yep. know the the food. Um, there's a there's a great scene where the rich are eating food, and some of the servants and common people are on the boardwalk um, looking in, and they see the rich, and they they kind of Proust uh, describes them as if they're the rich are in the aquarium, like Christians. Mm. Yeah, I mean, it's just you know fun stuff like that, and yeah, uh, and just the whole—I mean, Swan's Way just being one of the ways you could go to get to get home, and yeah. you know, just that they're going on these walks, and and we could go this way or we could go that way, and that era where it's there are trains and there is mobility. It's it's kind of modern. There's war, but. There's also still that kind of it's kind of my grandparents' era. Yeah, I mean it's and 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 you can write pages about the flowers. Yeah, in, uh, in Swan's Way and Odette and Charles Swan, uh, I'm, we haven't really talked about what Swan's Way is, but I mean Charles Swan is uh, this. Uh, idol of the narrator, mm-hmm. and he's not that great a guy. Yeah. Um, 
but he makes a play for Odette, who's a, a a former prostitute, and she has these flowers in the front of her coat, cotillias, and they talk about how um, when they make out, the code is you know making cotillias. Hmm. The use of flowers throughout the book is very telling. The they're well kept, but then they're sort of like, you know, used and discarded. And it, it's just it, this, you could go on and on about some of the symbolism. And I was just pulled, I pulled down from my shelf, um, the, the French psychoanalytic theorist, Julia Kristeva. Mm, yep. Uh, she has a book on, uh, proofs that's amazing. Yeah. I'm in memory, but I was rereading the first chapter because there's this offhand reference to a novel by George Sand in um swan's way Mm -hmm. and the novel the plot of it is about a young boy who is adopted by a mother and then leaves the village and then comes back and then ends up marrying his adopted mother Mm. and julia christeva is basically (laughs) just like i mean if there was a mother son (laughs) plot (laughs) that was you know ever more like complex than you know marcel and his mother i mean this yeah so there are all these layers that we you know you can explore if you want you don't have to but i just think you know just taking flowers for example i mean there's every object is there's all these little motifs yeah proust does make you want to re he he makes you want to go see the paintings of the artists that he's oh, talking yeah. about. He makes you want to read Ruskin and Anatole France and, and the the writers that he's talking, George Sand and the other writers that he's talking about. And he's his love for the art is infectious. Yeah. I mean, the the description of music is yeah. incredible, too. Vintoy and yeah. his, the melody. The sonata um, and the little phrase. Yeah, and people kind of leaving sheet music on the piano and saying like, "Oh, what was what's this?" because they wanted to play it. I mean, it, you know, there's just so much in here that I mean, you could write PhDs, PhDs on. Yeah, and then, you, but you don't have to dig that deep. You can just go with the the entire mood of it, and I think that's just like such a testament to his writing. Yeah, you know, the the language is so sweeping. Hmm. Okay, so what is number four? Number four was just how, I, I, I call it funny, but it's really just how in, insanely self-centered yeah, right. and obsessive <laughs> he is. Um, yeah, and he kind of has a sense of humor about it a little bit, but it's more deadpan <laughs> than that. He's not really yeah. making fun of himself, but you can tell that he he gets that he's a little over the top sometimes. Yeah, I mean, he uh, he talks about like how you know, he can find aesthetic pleasure in almost anything. Yeah. Um, including the, the train schedule. Right. I mean, he says, uh, <laughs> uh, the motive for my exhilaration was a desire for artistic delights. The guidebooks sustained it even more than the books on aesthetics themselves and more than the guidebooks, the railway timetable. Hmm. <laughs> it's, like, it's like, what? Right. Yeah. He's <laughs> and, kind of easy to parody. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I'll, I'll get to that. That's what, that's probably my last reason. You know, the, the the relationship with the mother, I think, is so funny. Yeah. And later in um, volume <laughs> two, because we just finished volume two, but in volume two, the relationship with the grandmother. Um, right. I, I just wanted to tell you this. His mother, when he was in his 20s and he had to serve his compulsory military service, his mother wrote him the most babying letters. And because he was, you know, saying how he missed home and he he didn't like the military. And she said, Marcel, think of 12 months as 12 chocolate squares. They'll go by quickly. (laughs) (laughs) I was like, can you imagine your mother writing you that in your 20s? Um, Yeah, I mean, you know, there are a lot of, you know, there's some kind of British hijinks like swan beds the cook mm-hmm. the the verderan circle turns on swan i mean right you know he had a novelist's eye 
as well as a philosopher's or a, a naturalist. Uh, you know, he wasn't just a botanist and a, an architect. He 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 had a real novelist eye for the foibles of human beings. Yeah, when I read him the, a second time, I I kind of think it could have been even longer. Mm, yeah, you know? right. Like it, I feel like there's some stuff that he could have riffed on a, even more. Yeah. So. <laughs> okay so did you give us your number five or you still have one well my, my number five was basically just how influential and fun how french he is and mm. i mean i was just thinking of just how high and lowbrow he's turned out to be yeah you know the joke in france i'm told is that very few people have read him mm -hmm. but everyone knows about him right and i was thinking of the uh the Monty Python skit. Yeah. I don't know if you've seen this, the all England summarized Proust competition. Yep. And then um, the first guy who goes says, Proust novel ostensibly tells of the irrevocability of time lost, of innocence and experience, the reinstatement of extra temporal values and time regained. Ultimately, the novel is both optimistic and set within the context of human religious experience in the first volume, Swan visits, and then he's cut off. <laughs> <laughs> And and the the judge goes, good attempt. <laughs> yeah, because you're given 15 seconds to summarize remembrance right. of things past. Right. So it, it would take a lifetime. Yeah, I mean, I think you know the the expansiveness of knowledge about love, sex, food. I mean, you have the Proust questionnaire. The influence of him, even without having read him is is profound right okay okay well that's a good five let me tick off the ones that i had jotted down uh just sort of my i didn't really give this a lot of thought i just i did a, a <laughs> an impulse of these are these are five things that i remember from swan's way if i were telling someone well here's what you get you know if i'm like a used car salesman saying like oh it's this one it's got a good stereo and this one uh it's got a uh you know leather seats you know what would i tell people about swan's way in particular and i wrote down the madeleine scene a lot of people i think and that kind of is like your number 5 in a way it's kind of like one of those things that's so famous that it's nice to actually read the real passage just to yeah i i mean i get goosebumps when i read that page yeah Right. Because, I mean, I've, I have the cartoon version mm -hmm. also. And that that little block, you know, that page is is magical. Yeah. I had going to bed and receiving the kiss from his mother. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that was great. <laughs> you touched on, too. I put in here Swan and Odette is sort of a self-contained love story, which is uh, a lot of Proust is so sprawling that this is, in some ways, this is a way to sort of say you're going to get a love story that's going to be very Proustian, but it's not going to spread out across five different volumes. You know, this is this is one where you'll you will be sort of focused on two characters for much of the book. That can kind of cut both ways, I guess, because in a way it's also it's a little more shallow than a lot of the other relationships that he talks about, which really deepen over the course of the volumes. But then I had the sonata and the little phrase and music mm. just in general and then my fifth one was kind of a catch-all but i said the promise of the future volumes that the memory and the sweep and the the description of the moods and the way that they change and then the characters the verderans and the germont the gilbert and the art and venice and francoise and marcel and his mother the grandmother i remember coming in just that you get introduced to all of these block and these characters and writers and ideas that all become so prominent and they get so rich in the future volumes, but you get a taste of them in this first volume, Swan's Way. So I think our, our lists were pretty close to one another. Yeah, I mean, it's once you you finish volume one, I don't understand the people who don't keep going. Yeah, and volume two, I think, might be the best one. So we finished, we should do an episode on volume two. Volume two, people loved it. Yeah, okay. I mean, we... You know, we and it, this was interesting, too, because we're about to start volume three. I just learned that I didn't know this, but apparently he thought Proust envisioned this as three volumes. Mm. 
Swan's Way, Germain's Way, and then Time Regain. Mm-hmm. And then he was about to publish Germain's oh, Way. Time Regain was going to be the third. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And, and World War One broke out. So they stop publication of the books uh-huh. so at that time he started creating a character based on his chauffeur yeah albertine right and he wrote within a button grove right and, made and that it became seven one. volumes so world yeah. war one caused it to become seven volumes right okay well thank okay. you world war one <laughs> <laughs> the only thing that was good for okay well, the germans so i i've got uh, a proust quiz for you okay I've got four writers here, and they all reacted to Proust in some way, and I'm going to give you the writers, and then I'm going to give you the reaction and see if you can put the reaction to the writer. Okay. Okay? Your writers are Virginia Woolf, Vladimir Mm -hmm. Nabokov, Evelyn Waugh, Mm -hmm. and Kazuo Ishiguro. Okay. Okay? I know all four of them you're very familiar with. Yeah. Okay. Quote. To be absolutely honest, apart from the opening volume, I find Proust crushingly dull. End quote. Which well, of the four I, said that? I, 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 that's Ishiguro. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> okay, next one. Quote, oh, if I could write like that. End quote. Wait, so Wolf, Nabokov, and who was the other? Evelyn Waugh. Oh, Evelyn Waugh. Nope. That was Virginia Woolf. Wow. Yeah. Okay. So blunt. You're down to two, Nabokov and Waugh. (laughs) Okay. Quote, the greatest prose works of the 20th century in order are Joyce's Ulysses, Kafka's The Metamorphosis, Bailey's Pittsburgh, or sorry, Petersburg, and the first half of Proust's fairy tale In Search of Lost Time. End quote. All right, I'm going to say Nabokov. Yeah, that's right. That was... <laughs> <laughs> I thought Ulysses tipped me off. Yeah, right. Okay, so now because we're down to just Evelyn Waugh, I'm going to throw in a few other writers, okay? So now we have Joseph Conrad, Francine Prose, David Foster Wallace, and Michael Shabone. Okay. Okay, quote, I am reading Proust for the first time, and I am surprised to find him a mental defective. <laughs> End quote. And later called him insane. <laughs> I was just going to say David Foster Wallace. No, Evelyn Waugh. <laughs> <laughs> okay, and let's do one more. Uh, who said, I found no emotion in it? The quotes are no emotion. Wow. Uh, Michael Shabon? Nope. That was Joseph Conrad. Oh, man. Michael Shabone said it was his favorite book. <laughs> wow. And Francine Prose had a really nice quote where she said, in your life or at various points, these themes or notes of Proust uh, stick in your mind like memories, not of your life, but Proust, and you realize they are your memories of Proust. Mm. That's really true. Yeah. I mean, I have vivid memories of things that I read about in Proust that feel more real to me than, you know, certain memories that I have. Yeah, no, that's true. I mean, I think whenever I go to a, you know, a small village in France and I see a steeple, I think of the the way the steeples seem to move the Martinville steeples Mm. in Proust as he was driving away. Yeah. They they seem to change order of height, you know. Yeah. And when I go to Venice, I think, oh, I find this beautiful, but I'm almost not worthy of it. <laughs> Venice was so important for Proust. It, he, like he, he had yeah. breakdowns before he even got there because he was so, he knew he wasn't <laughs> going to be able to take it. And I get there and I think, oh, I can I can appreciate this. But I can't quite appreciate it just as hard as as Proust would have appreciated it. (laughs) Okay, one more quiz. True or false? Henry James once wrote in a letter, quote, While it is true, I once called a novel a loose baggy monster. Monsieur Proust seems to have taken these words as a challenge more than a credo, and he has pushed the concept beyond all reason. 
what he terms his novel, that's in quotes, is at once too loose, too baggy, and too monstrous to be worthy of the term. End quote. True or false? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's so long. I'll just say true. <laughs> false. Uh, Henry James did not say that, but he d- I made that up. But he did say that reading Proust was, quote, inconceivable boredom associated with the most extreme ecstasy which it is possible to imagine, end quote. <laughs> I don't know if that's fair. I, I wouldn't. Mm. Say it's necessarily inconceivable boredom. I, I actually think Proust is less boring than most of Henry James, at least later Henry James. <laughs> so it's kind of funny that he would say that. He seems to, you know, physician, heal thyself. Okay, so my next question was the Twitter book club, where they are in it. So you finished the second volume and then you're you're going to head into the third? We just finished the second volume. We took three days off mm-hmm. and... Uh, Monday, which is today, or whenever. I mean, when yeah, we're it'll be in the it. past by the time yeah. this comes out. We're we're going to start Germain's way, and um, I'm going back to the Penguin because Volume Two, I went back to Kill Martin, Monk Grief, mm-hmm. just this kind of as an experiment to see how I remembered it. Yeah, and it it, it was a little tortured. Oh wow, huh. I have to say, yeah. yeah. So. Although that's the big thing about translations. That's one of the debates is would it, if it's closer in time to the author, would it be mm-hmm. closer in spirit? Proust probably was kind of tortured to read uh, in French. Although you've read Proust in French, haven't you? I've read parts of Swan's Way. Mm-hmm. So this was interesting. Some of the French readers in the book club said that Proust is as hard to read in French as he is in English. Yeah, right. <laughs> so they said it's you know it's not a matter of translation. Yeah, he, that doesn't it, surprise it me. It actually is hard. Yeah, to read. Yeah, um, but uh, apparently in France it used to be taught in junior year of high school. Mm. Swan's Way. They they read Swan's Way and within a Button Grove they read the first two. Well, they should. This is one I of their you know. I mean, it's a good anecdote for the arrogance of a teenager <laughs> to read that and just be like, okay, this is, you know, this is the pinnacle. Yeah. Right. Instead of catcher in the rye, <laughs> right. which basically says, you know, you are the best. Your, <laughs> your view of the world is paramount. And in fact, it's high art and it's literature and you be you is to <laughs> say, you know what? You've got some living to do, pal. Oh, I mean, I people were giddy <laughs> as they were reading Swan's Way. They, people were—I I could tell—they were rushing onto Twitter to write certain things, right? Um, and it was just—it was infectious. People were responding back, and they were saying like, "Oh, I gotta read this translation the next time," and yeah. you guys have to read this article about Proust's chauffeur, and it was yep. uh, yeah, it was great. It does lend itself to that you do get the feeling that a lot of people who are reading proust think i've got to write a book about this experience i've got to tell people about it i've got to write articles about it i've got to do research on this like it's there are a lot of books about the year i read proust or how proust saved my marriage or you know whatever it is (laughs) but it, it does feel like people get a little bit inspired, but also a little proprietary about their own thoughts coming out of the reading of Proust. Yeah, and I think one thing that I recommend is reading someone else alongside Proust. I mean, I'm reading four Mm. books alongside Proust, but I was reading Rachel Cusk alongside Proust Mm -hmm. and also the Flaubert-Turgenoff letters. Yeah. And I just think... You can really see how innovative and original Proust was. Yeah, good advice. Okay, let's leave things there. Mike, as always, thanks for joining us on the History of Literature. Thanks, Jack. Okay, that's going to do it for this episode of the History of Literature. My thanks to Mike Palindrome for stopping by. That was delightful. And to Marcel tireless Marcel 
who has given the world so much pleasure. And to Sarah and her dad, Michael, who have given me so much pleasure. Thank you very much for your email, Sarah. You have made my month a nice little bright spot at the end of a year of darkness. We are the History of Literature at historyofliterature.com and where else? Facebook, Twitter, etc. We've teamed up with LitHub Radio and The Podglomerate, which you can find at www.thepodglomerate.com. And there's some kind of deal going on with Stitcher. I'll have to learn more about that and let you know when that comes through. A lot of plans in the works for 2021. Oh, and if you are a literary agent, listen up. If you are a literary agent or a book editor looking for exciting new projects, let me know. You can reach me by email. I have got just the thing for you. Exciting. As Michael Lewis, the author of Moneyball, once said to me in my book-selling days, let's hope this makes us both a lot of money. (laughs) Well, he was half right, as it turned out. (laughs) It made one of us a lot of money. He seems to have done just fine. While I'm still in the ditch with the towel over my head. Honk as you speed by, Michael. Maybe toss some garbage out the window. Give me something to gnaw on. I'm Jack Wilson, the great gnawer of garbage. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time. The Podglomerate, a sonic universe.